I really appreciate the theme of GYC this year, but if not. But in many ways, in some ways rather, it kind of goes against the grain of society today. I believe it's been ably presented throughout this weekend through the plenary sessions and also through the workshop presentations that have taken place. If you're to look at the stratosphere of society, though, it could be potentially argued that a theme, but if not, would be more at place amongst the older demographic. In this room, in Western society, we have approximately five or six generations in society. The older generation, the builder generation, born before 1945. Sometimes they're called the greatest generation, the generation that fought the war, that stood against the evils of fascism and communism, that value hard work and honesty. They were followed by the boomers. The boomers were born between 1945 sorry, and 1964. This is the generation of flower power, the protest hippie movements and cries for world peace, independence of various countries around the world. It was a tumultuous time. They were followed by Generation X, the first generation that had mass divorce, latchkey kids. Many of these people were the, 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 the minds behind the birth of tech companies today. The X was followed by millennials, millennials born between late, late 70s, early 80s and the late 90s. A generation that views itself as smart. And don't say amen too loudly, those millennials who said amen, they were the first generation that did not describe themselves as respectful. A generation that described themselves as tolerant and liberal. Today they're aged around 28 to 45. After the millennials is generation Z or Z, depending where you're born in the world, born between the late 90s and 2012. Digital natives. They've never known the world without the mobile phone and social media and things like that. A generation influenced by pop culture, technology, entertainment, and science. The differences between the generations, especially millennials and Zed and boomers and builders, is huge. This is the generation that values inclusivity, appreciation for variance, and the first generation to be financially worse off than their parents. Only 4% of Generation Z have a worldview. Atheism is double amongst Generation Z than the rest of the population. It's a generation today that has to deal with the three challenges of privatization, secularization, and pluralization. Privatization where your faith life is in more of a private sphere. Secularization where faith is removed from the institutions of society, like education and the places you can't talk about God. And pluralization where all ideas are valid. If this wasn't challenge enough on the flip side, with the expansion of social media, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and whatever the algorithm God's decide appears in your feed, we have groupthink, cancel culture, identity politics. But even today, to a generation that values inclusivity more than uniqueness, to a generation that values cooperation, more than individuality to this generation, the theme, but if not, still rings true. 
God needs a people today who, like the three Hebrew boys, will stand for him. In the book, fifth volume of the testimony is volume five. Read here on the screen. It says this, in the midst of this confusion, sorry, a great work is to be accomplished. Broader plans are to be laid. A voice must go forth to arouse the nations. And it says, men whose faith is weak and wavering are not the ones to carry forward the message at this important time, crisis. We need the courage of heroes and the faith of what? Martyrs. It is by looking to the past that we gain encouragement. You know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 15 and verse 3, whatever things were written before are written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The the account of people in the Bible is written there to give us encouragement and hope in this world today. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 14, we have a biblical character there who I believe epitomizes the theme of GYC, but if not. In Matthew chapter 14, we're introduced to a story that happened 2,000 years ago. We don't actually know too much about John the Baptist. We don't know too much. We know he's a cousin of Jesus. We know he baptizes Jesus. We know he preaches in the wilderness. We know he called out the sins of the religious leaders and political leaders of his day. But we're not given too, too much information in the Bible about John, but we're given enough information for us to be able to pull something from it and, and enough to pull from it that should inspire us today. John the Baptist was locked up, as Matthew 14 brings out. At the time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said to his servants, verse 2, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead and therefore mighty works to to, um, show forth themselves to him. For Herod had laid hold. Now it's kind of recounting what's already taken place. Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias, his wife's sake. We'll come back to this later. Herod puts John in prison because his wife wants him to. For John had said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John the Baptist was no shrinking violet. He stood before the king and told him he's committing adultery because he has a woman that should be his brother's wife. The Bible says, but when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. In 2019, I had the privilege to travel to the country of Jordan. We did some filming for Lineage. And there we packed ourselves into a van, nine-seater van, and we were driving to try and find this place where John the Baptist was beheaded. Came off the main road by the Dead Sea, and we worked our way up the mountain. Up the mountain. Windy road. There were no guardrails on either side. It was a windy road going steep, steep, steep up the mountain. There were no tour buses up there. There was no real tourists up there. Most of the tourists in, 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 in Jordan head to Petra because it's Instagrammable, though it has little biblical his, uh, significance. So we're driving up there to the top, and as we get up there to the top, we find Machaerus, which was the palace of Herod, which was the place where John the Baptist was locked up prior to his execution. In some ways, it's a beautiful place. It overlooks the Dead Sea. The hills 
of Israel on the other side of the Dead Sea, exclusive, isolated from everyone else. And I can just imagine with a palatial palace up there, it would have been a lovely place to live. But for John the Baptist, it wasn't a joyous place for him to end his life. Here on the top of the mountain, there's a party that takes place and Herodias, uh, sorry, and Herod is standing there and, his do- and Herodias' daughter is dancing in front of him. My assumption is she's dancing seductively. She's not doing some country dancing or something like that. She's dancing in front of him seductively and it gets to the point where he looks at her and he says, what do you want? Rather than saying she wanted houses, rather than saying she wants lands, rather than saying she wants a section of the kingdom, she looks back at him and says, hmm, let me have a think about it. And then she runs, the Bible says in chapter 14, she runs and goes to see her mother. And she says, mom, Herod says I can have whatever I want. What should I tell him? And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The daughter goes back to Herod and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so it was that the executioner walks into the prison cell, chops his head off puts it on a silver platter and takes it up there. He had no funeral. There were no crowds gathered outside his house like the other Bible stories. There was no mourners who were gathered there. And in some ways, maybe more sadly, he never gets to see the fruit of his labor. It was a lonely death. There's no crowds cheering or or anything. There's no one crying out saying, be faithful till the end, John. Maybe when he died, he had more questions than answers. I don't know. But when he died, he had to lay hold on the promise that, that, that God had a plan for his life and the plan had taken effect, even if he couldn't see it before his eyes. He wasn't that old. He was in his 20s or early 30s. John the Baptist did not imagine his life would end around his third decade. But when he had the choice to not say the truth to the king, when he had the choice to maybe tone it down a bit, when he had the choice to be more politically correct, he shuns that choice and says, no, I will boldly preach before the king no matter what. And It wasn't even like he had the threat of an execution over him when he preached the truth. That execution only came later when the daughter and the father, sorry, the daughter and and the king and the wife come in this unholy alliance. John the Baptist lived without fear and his legacy ought to inspire us today. Let me share with you a story of someone who I believe may be closer to our time, who had a, a slightly similar experience to John the Baptist. One of my favorite reformers, we've covered him in lineage, I'll take you back to the year 1536, or rather maybe a few years before that, 20 years before that. In the country of England, the country was Catholic, universally. It was not allowed to be anything else. There was a law in 1408 that forbade the translation of the Bible into any other language. People don't have Bibles in their homes. Everyone's Catholic. The Bible is outlawed. And in this context, William Tyndale sitting at a dining table with someone one day, 
And they're saying, you know, if we had a choice, if we had a choice, if we had to have a choice between, between God's word and God's law, and on the other hand, the Pope's laws, if it's not a case of both and, but it's a case of either this or that, if we have that choice of either this or that, we would choose the Pope's laws. William Tyndale sitting there is indignant and he says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life many days, I will cause the boy who drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. And so he sets about to write a translation of the Bible that could be understood by the common man, that could be understood by even the edge uneducated plow boy. It's illegal to do in England, so he has to leave England in 1524 or 5, I believe it was. He goes first to Germany. He almost gets captured in Germany. He escapes just in time, carrying his prince with him, jumping on a boat and getting out of town. He makes his way to Belgium. And there in Belgium, he finishes his translation of the New Testament and publishes it in 1526. And now the Bible starts to seep into England. King Henry VIII doesn't like this, and so he sends spies throughout Europe to try and catch this man. If you, if you named him God's outlaw or God's fugitive, it will be a fitting description of his life. And they try and track him down. But his Bible still keeps slipping into England. They can't track him down. And it goes on for several years. So finally, a man by the name of Henry Phillips makes his way over there to Belgium. He's heard some, he's been tipped off that maybe he's there. And Henry Phillips makes his way there and he befriends him. Thinking long term. Makes friends with him. And over the course of several weeks and months, he builds up a friendship with him. Some people tell William Tyndale, you should be careful of that guy. But William Tyndale says, no, 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 it's okay. And he's friends with him. And then one day while he's leaving a house, Henry Phillips has ordered for his capture. He's captured and he's taken to a castle. And there in this castle he's taken to, they ask him if he'll recant. They ask him if he'll allow. They ask him if he'll come back to England. He says, no, I will not go back to England. I will stay here because the mission of my life is to translate the Bible. And the king says, I can't translate it in England. I would rather die here with the mission of my life unadulterated than change my mission and go back home. Friends, do you live for a cause that's bigger than life itself? Do you have a purpose in your life that's bigger than life? He was ordered to be executed by strangling. They botched it. I don't know how you botch a strangling. You just hold on longer. But they botch it. And then they burn him. He had no idea when he died that in 1990, one of the last remaining copies of his Bible would sell to the British Museum for one million pounds or 1.5 million dollars. He had no idea that his translation would form the bedrock of the 1611 King James Version of the Bible. He had no idea. He had no idea that in 2002, when the British public would vote on the most famous Englishman of all time, he would sit in the top 20. He had no idea. He had no idea that the king who ordered his execution would mandate within a year of his death that a Bible, a Bible, a Bible is placed in every single parish church in England. 
His last words out of his mouth before he was killed by the, the flames was, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England, a prayer that was answered within a year. As he dies, he can see no fruit to his work. As he dies, a lonely, isolated death in a foreign country. But he lived by a principle of but, if not. You see, John, John also had to endure, John the Baptist had to endure the challenge, so to speak, of seeing his disciples diminish. And another leader's disciples increase. That's tough. His little band gets smaller and Jesus' band gets bigger. It may not have been tough for John. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But it was definitely tough for John's disciples. They said, what's going on here, John? You know, we used, we used to be the men around town. Now there's this other guy. There's this other guy. You know, popularity does something to our motives. Watching how many likes you get online or how many followers you get or how many subscribers you've got to your little channel. It's not healthy. It strikes at the heart of the struggle between humility and self-centeredness. In the selfish heart, in the selfish heart, there's always a desire for us to see the person who succeeds us as failing. You're a head elder in church? And the nominating committee does not choose you next year. If you're sanctified, you'll pray for them. You'll support them if they take your support. Selfish heart, though, is like, <clears throat> see what he can do. I hope they come back calling in 10 months' time, and even then I might not even say yes. I want them to suffer for another year longer. In fact, let me just start a new church on my own. You know how many church plants we have started because first elders didn't get first elders anymore? One of the most f common forms of church planting is elders disagreeing. Have mercy, yeah. The church doesn't ask you to be the youth leader no more. The church doesn't ask you to be the pathfinder leader. The church doesn't ask you to be the hospitality leader anymore. I don't know. Whatever it is, whatever you put your identity and value and stock in, and the church doesn't ask you again, and the heart of a selfish person is like, mm, I hope they fail. We don't, we don't say it, but we think it. John saw his followers decrease. He saw Jesus' followers increase. And when his disciples came to him and said, what's going on here? John just said, he must increase and I must decrease. John went through that challenge, that, that, that thing. There's a character from history who went through the same challenge. His name was George Wishart. Some of you may have heard about him. George Wishart. He was Scotland's reformer before John Knox. We all know about John Knox. If you know a little bit about church history, we know about John Knox. But George Wishart came before him. He was the forerunner. He dies at the age of 32. Young man. He dies at the age of 32. He was pursued by about 500 soldiers across Scotland trying to capture him and trying to get him down. And eventually, he, had, he took his last preaching appointment to a place called Ormiston, Scotland. It's just south of Edinburgh. And as he, took, he went there, John Knox, who was his bodyguard carrying a two-handed sword wherever he went. What a man. He says, I'll follow you. And George Wishart looks back at him. He says, no, 
do not follow me because one is sufficient for sacrifice. One is sufficient for sacrifice. You stay here. And George Wishart went there. He got arrested. They finally caught him and they take him first to Edinburgh Castle. Then they take him to St. Andrew's Castle. And they command Cardinal Beaton commands that he should die. He's burned by the stake there in St. Andrew's, Scotland. The home of golf, but the home to the first martyr of Scotland. And there he's burned at the stake, and as he's burned at the stake today, there's a GW on the ground, not for George Washington, but for George Wishart. It marks the exact spot where he was burned at the stake. Today, cars park on top of it. It's just by the, near, near, near the sidewalk. But on that spot, as he was burning and dying, John Locke stood in the crowd watching his mentor die, vowing that he would carry on the Reformation in Scotland. John Knox did carry on the Reformation in Scotland. He lived a good life. He went to Geneva. He spent some time with John Calvin. He comes back to Scotland. He sets up the Church of Scotland, or as you know it, the Presbyterian Church. Founds the church. Doesn't die a martyr's death. One is sufficient for sacrifice. It wouldn't have happened if George Wishart had said, come with me. But he had the foresight to say, no, no, no. After I go, someone else needs to take over. Just like John the Baptist said, no, 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 no. I must uh, decrease, but he must increase. John the Baptist was locked in this cell, stuck in limbo. Stuck in limbo. They didn't want to kill him, the Bible says in Matthew 14. They didn't want to kill him because he's a popular man and he feared the people. But his wife wants him dead, so he's not quite sure what to do. John gave everything to serve God. He gave everything to serve God. And he's probably wondering, maybe if he's not wondering, the thought would have crossed his mind. Like, like, like why? What, what's the point? What's the point? He moved to the country. He lived in the wilderness. He moved away from the conveniences of town and the comforts of town and he moves out there to the wilderness and still this holds no weight on his execution day. He ate a simple diet of honey and locusts, but on his execution day, it holds no weight. He lived a life of reform, housing reform, where he lived, dress reform, what he wore. He lives a life as much as he can following his Lord and Master, but at the end, when that sword comes and chops his head off and severs his head from his shoulders. None of this earned him any privilege or favor in terms of ease and comfort. In Daniel chapter 3, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they stand there on the plain of Jura, and the music plays as we've heard. And they say in verse 17, Our God who we serve can deliver us, and we believe he will. Amen. We love this side of God. We love to tell the stories of God. I gave my life to God and I got an A in class. I gave my life to God and, and I wanted Sabbath off and I went to see my boss and I said, can I have Sabbath off? And the boss said, no. And I got fired, but then I got a better job. We love those stories. We love the God of verse 17. I told my teacher I couldn't take a Sabbath exam and I appealed to the, 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 the head of the university and they changed it somehow and, and I got to take my exam and, and I'm here today because God moved. I prayed for my loved one to get healed. The doctor said they had four months left to live and they're still here with us 10 months on. We love the God of verse 17, but verse 18 starts and says, but if not. What about verse 18? 
What about when your boss won't let you have Sabbath privileges and you lose your job and the next job you get is worse? It's under your pay level. It's under your education level. What about then? What about when you, pay for, you pray for the exam to move and the exam doesn't move? What about when you pray for healing and God doesn't heal? But Lord, we lived right. We lived healthy. I said no to all those things in the potluck line again and again and again and again and again, even when I wanted to eat them. And I still got sick. What about when God doesn't honor your faithfulness with prosperity in an earthly sense? What about then? What about then? What about then? Four months ago, my father passed away. Four months ago, tomorrow, my father passed away. Young, relatively young, in his 70s. Before his time, you may say, he died from COVID pneumonitis. Just when you think it's over, it's not. He died at peace with the world, at peace with his family, and at peace, most importantly, with God. It was a painfully beautiful thing to watch. We prayed for healing. And I know thousands of people, probably more than 80% of this auditorium, got COVID and got healed. We prayed for healing. The pastor came, prayed on the ward. No healing. The great life giver decided his time was up. My dad accepted it. He was a nurse. He knew his body had no fight or his innings was over. But in the midst of the pain and the grief and the heartache, you say, God is still God. And the words of the song, God and God alone is fit to take the universe's throne, ring true. Our spiritual lineage is littered with people who did not have a cozy end to their life. I think of Margaret Wilson in Scotland. She was 18 years old. Arrested for not attending the state church. Her and her sister, she's 18, her sister's 13. Her father managed to petition the release of her sister because she's so young. She's only 13. But 18-year-old Margaret stays in prison. And there's another Margaret there called Margaret McLachlan. She's in her 80s, in her 60s, sorry. Condemned to die. They live in a part of England where, where the beach goes out really, really gradually and long. And so the tide can be a mile out and then the tide comes in quickly. And they said, we're going to execute you by drowning. We're going to tie you to a stake. And as we tie you to a stake, you'll watch the sea. Your executioner come closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. They put Margaret McLachlan about 100 meters ahead of Margaret Wilson strategically so that when the older woman was dying, they would go to the younger woman and say, do you want to give up? And as the older Margaret's dying, with the waves lapping around her, her, her lips and her nose, and she's dying there, and she's struggling for life, they come to Margaret Wilson, and they say, Margaret, what do you see? And she says, I see Christ wrestling in the waves. Do you want to recant? No. No. And she quotes one of the Psalms, and she stays there at her post of duty. But... If not. You see, John the Baptist is a sign of those of us who come at the end of time. The sermon is entitled The Final Trilogy. Because we also have to make a stand like John the Baptist did at the end of time. John the Baptist was actually prophesied about. In the book of Malachi chapter 4, it says, Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, I will send you Elijah the prophet. 
John the Baptist was a type or he was a repetition of the first Elijah. The first Elijah had to stand before King, he King Ahab, sorry, King Ahab and call out his sins. Then he called out Jezebel's sins and he did that boldly. He didn't care. And the first Elijah stands there and calls out these sins. The second Elijah, John the Baptist, stands before the king, stands before his adulterous wife, tells them they should put their sins away. He is not afraid, he's not seduced, he's not entitled. He says, but if not, and what about you? What about us today? The Bible says before the coming of the Lord, Elijah will come. Before the coming of Jesus the first time, we have John the Baptist. Before Jesus comes the second time, we have us. Who have to stand before kings and people and declare the truth of God in the Bible. I want us to focus a little bit on how John the Baptist dies. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 14, if you've read there or if not, read a little bit later. What's the process of John the Baptist dying? The Bible tells us that as John the Baptist dies, there's this unholy union. You have the king, the state. And the daughter is dancing in front of the king. And there's also a mother. A daughter and a mother. Do you get your Revelation 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 bells ringing? The daughter dances before the king. The king says, what do you want? The daughter, though, doesn't give the answer. The daughter takes her orders from the mother. And what happens? John the Baptist's head is on a platter. Today we're living during a time when apostate Protestantism, we're told in the book Great Controversy, will reach its hand across the gulf and glass grasp the hands of Romanism. But it's apostate Protestantism, evangelical Christianity, as it dances before the state, the state will eventually say to her, what do you want? And the daughter will take her orders from Rome and say, give me the head of God's people. This prophetic end time scenario is spoken about in the book Great Controversy, and it's happening right before our eyes. We can see today, on a local, on a regional, or a national level, leaders who have little spirituality in their life, who can't even name their favorite books in the Bible, whose life and conduct might be nothing like Jesus Christ, who might be arrogant and uncouth, say to the Christians, what do you want? I'll give it to you. I will deal with that for you. And before our eyes, we're seeing an unhealthy symbiotic relationship form between the daughter and the king between apostate protestantism and the state we can see this happening right before our eyes right here in north america where the hand is reaching across the, the gulf to grasp the hand it was benjamin franklin who said when religion is good it takes care of itself but in america today religion is not good anymore religion is weak and so religion is increasingly needing the strong arm of the state to kind of help it a little bit out in its moral stance the daughter's dancing before the state to get what it wants, which will one day be your head. I'm from England, so I'll say what I've got to say. But it's not about any political party here. If you look back at the 40 years of American history, from Reagan to Bush to Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden, There's one constant. Forget economic policies. There's one constant. And throughout all of those, there's one constant. The gap between the second beast and the first beast 
is getting narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. Regardless of blue or red, CNN or Fox, the gap's getting closer and closer and closer. Church, don't get seduced by the daughter because the daughter's coming for your head too. The daughter's coming for your head too. Great Controversy, page 581, says these words. It says, while they are bent on the accomplishment of their purpose, Ro let's go back one slide, please. While they are bent on the accomplishment of their purpose, Rome is aiming to reestablish her power to recover her lost supremacy. Let the principle once be established in the United States. What principle? That the church may employ or control the power of the state, that religious observances may be enforced by secular laws. In short, that the authority of church and state is to dominate the conscience and the triumph of Rome in this country is assured. Elijah said, but if not. John the Baptist said, but if not. And God's people at the end of time will have to also say, but if not. In this trilogy of story, normally in any trilogy, you know, I don't know, there's a few of them out there, Star Wars and Lords of Rings and all those stuff. Normally the first one is the best one. And the second one and the third one is normally not as good as the first one. But in this trilogy, the final trilogy is the best one. God's people will be the best. Who will do the most in spite of the most at the end of time. In 1527, a 28-year-old man lost his life. He was part of the Swiss Reformation. And he believed in rebaptism. And the Swiss Reformation said no. No rebaptism. So in 1527, you have a martyr in Zurich, Switzerland, martyred not by the Catholics, but by the Protestants, condemned to drown because he believed in rebaptism. And there he was drowned in the January day in 1527 in a cold river. As he went to his death, his mother and his brother called out from the banks and said, Stay faithful, Felix, stay faithful. Stay faithful. Church, God is looking for people today who will be faithful to him no matter what. Not because of how he blesses them in verse 17, but even if God doesn't bless them, like he didn't bless George Wishart with a long life, like he doesn't bless John the Baptist with children and grandchildren and a long life, like he doesn't bless Margaret Wilson to even see her 20th year, doesn't bless them. They don't have an earthly blessing to look at, but in spite of that, they say, even if God doesn't cover me with protection, I still will not worship anyone and I'll still follow the calling of God on my life, no matter what. God is calling for you today to give all to Him, no matter what. God is calling for you today to give all to Christ. Don't follow God just because of how he blesses you. And then you lose your faith when the blessings go. Is there someone today that wants to make that ultimate commitment to Christ? You've been on the fence. You heard the appeal of Elder Sam Walters. You heard the appeal of Pastor Mark Howard. You heard the appeal of Pastor Jermaine Gale. And as you heard the appeals... You resisted. 
but you're here again and the Spirit's talking to you again and you want to say Lord I want to surrender all to you I want my spiritual life not to be about any blessings or lack of blessings I want to follow God like John the Baptist did like Elijah did and like God's end time people will no matter what If that's you, and you like to give your heart to the Lord, and you'd like to be baptized, I want to invite you to come forward before we close with prayer. If you'd like to be baptized. Second appeal I'm going to make, I wasn't going to make it, but when I was backstage, they told me that no one had made this appeal, so I'm going to make the appeal. We had a powerful testimony today, two days ago, of a young man who's flying planes in the Philippines. Missionary service. Who's gone through some incredibly hard times on a personal level, on a teamwork level, on a ministry level. Who could be earning a lot more money working as a corporate pilot in North America. But he's out there flying planes across the oceans and, uh, and islands of the Philippines. Some of you may need a trajectory change in your life. Go a different direction. And my appeal is to ask, is there anyone here that wants to commit to give their life one year, five years, student missionary, five years, or career missionary? to God and go as a missionary somewhere for him wherever that may be if you'd like to do that if the spirit's touching your heart I'd like to invite you forward as well at this time while the music plays Father in heaven as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed firstly Lord I'd like to pray pray for each person who has come forward this morning whether it's baptism or missionary service, it's no light commitment that they have made. It's a serious, serious commitment. They then wanted to give their life to you. Bless them, Lord. Strengthen them. Make clear to them what the next step of their life will be. And in the weeks or months ahead, when maybe they're tempted to think it was not really your spirit leading them, may your spirit continue to convict and say, yes, it was. Be with those of us here, Lord. May we live a life like John the Baptist, where we're not swayed by pressure. We're not swayed by popularity. We're not swayed by prosperity. but we surrender all to you no matter what. Bless us, Lord. Be with us as we leave this place. May you give us traveling mercies home, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This message was recorded in partnership with Audio Burst, the GYC conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. 
GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh Avenue Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.